0: Hey everyone, this is Caleb, and today I am so excited for you to be joining me here on the Learner's Corner podcast. Today I'm honored to be joined by Beth Silvers, and if you're familiar with, or whether or not you're familiar with Beth, we're going to talk with her about uh, her brand new book, which has recently come out called Now What? How to Move Forward When We're Divided About Basically Everything. And so we're going to get into that here in just a moment. However, if this happens to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner or joining us today, I do want to let you know about a couple of things here. And the first is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations, much as the one that we're going to get into here with Beth in just a few minutes. And the reason is, is because there's some places to where you can have conversations and there's some people to where it is safe to talk about maybe everything with and then there's some people to where you're not sure how they're going to respond or you know or you think you know how they'll respond and you just know that it's not going to lead anywhere good well we want to be the type of place here to where we can engage in all of those topics in this episode especially we're going to talk a lot about that now we also believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone regardless of whether or not we agree with them completely And that sometimes we learn from them and how they handled things really well and other times we learn from failures as well and we learn what not to do from someone and we believe that we can learn from anything and from everything regardless of whether whatever that thing is because everything has something to teach us that we can learn something from everything from the trivial to the serious now as i mentioned today i'm talking with beth silvers And uh, she is not only the author of this book, she also co-hosts the Pantsuit Politics podcast with Sarah Stewart Holland. And I remember first hearing about them a couple of years ago and was really just excited to just have this opportunity to talk about it. And I absolutely uh, enjoyed this book so much. It is so practical in it too. And she, really both of them, they address... Two, how do you engage with two categories of um, people? Isn't isn't the correct term for it? But how do you how do you engage with people who are um, very close to you, very personal, whether that be friends or family or coworkers, and then how do you engage with people who are maybe uh, just a little bit further away? And some of that pertains to. Uh, government or churches or schools and social media and national politics and global politics and local and state and and all of that stuff as well and so we're going to touch into uh, a little bit of that today but uh before i do that uh let me tell you a little bit about Beth. And actually, uh, if you have something that you would love us to cover on the podcast, a topic or a sub or a subject or someone that you would love us to cover, um, please reach out to me at learner's corner podcast and let me know, or if you're just really excited about something that you're learning about, would love to hear from you there as well. And the best way to reach out to me is learner's corner podcast at gmail.com. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Beth, and then we're going to jump into my conversation with her. Beth Silvers co-hosts pantsuit politics, and has co-authored uh, two books. The first is, I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening, A Guide to Grace-Filled Political Conversations, and the most recent now, what, How to Move Forward When We're Divided About Basically Everything. And she has co-authored those with Sarah Stuart holland and uh, she also hosts uh, Pantsuit Politics with Sarah as well. Her work has been featured in The Atlantic, The New York Times, uh, as well as several other places as well. And she currently lives in Union, Kentucky with her husband, Chad, and her daughters as well. So without any further wait, here is our conversation. Well, Beth, it's so good to have you on the Learner's Corner today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah. And just as we get started, you know, one of the things that I love uh, asking people anytime that I'm talking with them about a work of art that they've created is I love hearing the story behind what made someone want to write, you know, in your case, this book. And so I would just love to hear from you. What was the thing or the inside an incident that made you and, you know, Sarah as well go, we need to write this book.
1: Sarah and I are primarily podcasters and we love creating something that has this immediate life. You sit down, you have the conversation, you share it, people respond to it immediately and then you're on to the next thing. And so writing a book is a very different challenge. And after we wrote our first book, I think you're wrong, but I'm listening. I was not so sure I wanted to do it again because a lot of what I love about creating a podcast is not present in writing a book. But it is a good challenge and it's a healthy challenge to sit down and think, what do I have to say that is enduring Mm -hmm. and that will endure, who knows what, a pandemic, a war, um, all kinds of political challenges and conflicts that we can't even anticipate as as we sit down to write a book a year before it gets published. And I think that it's just been healthy in our relationship to go through that exercise, to sit together and think, what do we as a team have to say that endures? And how can we serve our community of listeners at this moment? Um, because we, we have such an engaged and wonderful audience of people who we know are struggling in their relationships in a really personal way. So this book is much more personal than what we do on the podcast. We're not talking about headline news. We're not talking about uh, philosophy or, or um, you know, political issues, doing like a deep dive on them. We're trying to say, hey, if you're struggling with the person you live with, let's try to give you some questions to use as you're talking with them and some mm. questions to ask yourself about who you want to be in that relationship. Um, and let's put that in a form that you can return to with time as you continue to navigate that. Cause the one thing that we know for sure is that political conflict will always be a part of our lives.
0: Yeah. And you know, one of the relationships that, which I, I absolutely love how you structure the book, too, even, you. even just from that perspective, um, but one of the things that you start out with is you you talk about our parents and stuff mm-hmm. and, and where we come from in our, in our family and how we deal with that. And one of the things that I was very eager to ask you about, because I think it's just such a common thing, of how what if what if you learned about how to navigate the relationship with your parents to where you know they have raised you, they've maybe instill, tried to instill some values in you, and you find yourself going, okay, I, I have landed in a different place here, but I still want to honor my parents and I don't want to disrespect them what have you learned about how to navigate that dynamic
1: it's very tricky and it's different for Sarah and for me because Sarah has very pronounced political conflict with her father and I Mm -hmm. think both of them would be fine with me saying that Uh, we say it a lot on the show and in the book yeah and it's much more subtle in my family and sometimes I think those subtle differences feel even stickier because you're usually on the same page Mm. I try anytime I'm in conflict with my parents to express that conflict uh, as the result of their strength in parenting me. You Mm -hmm. taught me to think for myself. Uh, You gave me the freedom to express my thoughts independently. And because of that, this is where I land, but that's not a rejection of you. It's just a manifestation of of these these things that I learned from you. Uh, You helped me get here, even though it's a place that, that differs from where you are. And I feel like over time, that's a long game, right? That doesn't solve the tension in the first conversation. But over time, I think my parents trust that I'm being genuine about that. It's not manipulation. It's true. They taught me to think independently. They taught me to express myself. I'm grateful for it. And I think mixing in that gratitude for them as parents instead of just seeing them as an opponent on a topic over time has really helped us have richer conversations.
0: Yeah. And you and Sarah spend basically the first half of the book talking about like the very personal side mm-hmm. of the relationships, you know, friends, family, kids, all of that stuff. Uh, I would love to hear from you which one of those relationships that you work through in the first half of the book is the most difficult for you or you, you find experiencing the most tension.
1: I think work is the hardest mm. Um My experiences in the workplace were really difficult for me because I was quite different than a lot of people I worked with. And I wouldn't even frame it around politics, although there is a political issue underlying almost everything that I felt a tension around. Uh, But just by personality, you know, I was a practicing lawyer and I am wired very differently than a lot of practicing lawyers are. What is important to me, what motivates me is quite different. What place I think work should have in life is different. Um, and, and in the workplace, and we really try to get to this in the book, you are wrapped in scarcity all the time. You are constantly thinking, well, if I don't fit in here, they'll find someone who does. Mm -hmm. If I mess up this time, you know, I'm one mistake away from losing my job. And that sense of scarcity about your livelihood can feel really constricting. And so that's where I have experienced kind of the most pain of separation, um, and where I feel that I wish I had some of the skills when I was still in that environment that I have now to better navigate it.
0: Can you talk about some of those skills?
1: I think understanding that our disagreement is generous when it is respectful. I wish I had better understood that. I tried to do it well while I was working, uh, but I think now I know how to say, I'm telling you that I think you're wrong because I respect you, because I care about our relationship because I care about this organization. Um, if I sat in silence and stewed, then all I can create is drama and gossip and negative morale. But if I bring forward the tension and I'm willing to, to work through it with you, that's an investment in our long-term relationship. Um, and I think I'm better now too, at just saying, well, I disagree, but I'm on board because we have to make a decision sometimes. So I'm able, to commit to a decision that i don't like um to be on the team because i do think it's a long game Mm -hmm.
0: yeah are there any other skills that you've learned that help you navigate like that workplace environment because just as you you were saying in your experience like that that's a very common experience that i think of and not and even i think just as you mentioned of not necessarily just the political but i feel different i have different values than than maybe the workplace that i'm working at
1: I think the other thing that I've gotten better at, and maybe this is age. I don't know if I don't know if I could have short circuited this, Um, but I think I've gotten better at being willing to just feel whatever physical manifestation of tension comes along Mm. and to kind of recognize that so that I keep going. So like those moments when you're in a board meeting or something and you look around and you realize that you are really alone compared to where the group seems to be going on an issue. Now I can say to myself. Oh, this makes my stomach hurt and I'm willing to have my stomach hurt because this is important and I can get through my stomach hurting during this meeting. I can keep going. I can keep talking about this. That's okay. I'm willing to be a little bit embarrassed here. I'm willing to feel a little bit lonely here uh, because I believe that what I have to say contributes, even if it doesn't change the outcome. And just being able to make that like brain, heart, body connection quickly and label it quickly and then decide what I'm going to do with it uh, has been a huge asset to me.
0: Hmm. Another, uh, and again, I feel like I might end up saying this almost in, in every question or anything. Another idea that really resonated with me um, that you talk about, uh, you and Sarah talk about, is how sometimes separating from, um, this, is, and this is back to our families mm-hmm. as well, sometimes separating from our families and from our homes reinforces Uh, What the other side of the perspective's worst side of us is, is that like, yep, they're going to change and and their fear is going to come true, that they are going to leave us. Uh, And so I would love for you to talk about that, just that dynamic and how you see that play out and what does it look like to not leave whenever you feel like that might be the easiest thing or the easier option of the two. Yeah,
1: you know, the decision of whether to stay or leave in a relationship is such a hard one. And we say in the book, it's not a math problem. We can't give you like a formula that after this many comments that hurt your feelings, you block your uncle on Facebook or something like it's, it is a very personal decision. You've really got to think about your own safety first. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and your ability to be in a healthy place with someone, even if it's challenging, but if you're, if you're safe and you're able to be with someone, uh, even though it's challenging, I, let me give you a little, um, metaphor for this. I have an 11-year-old daughter and a 14-year-old dog. And my 11-year-old daughter sleeps every night with my 14-year-old dog and loves her very much. And she thinks a lot about how our 14-year-old dog is not going to be here forever. Mm. And uh, the first time this really hit her, she came to me just in tears. I mean, i would just gotten out of the shower because it's just like a universal truth that your kids think deep thoughts while you're in the shower and need you right then. But she came to me just sobbing. And I said, you know, Jane, what you're feeling right now is anticipatory grief. You know, something is going to happen that's going to hurt a lot. And you're not the only person who feels this. We all feel this at moments in life. And we just need to understand that this is if if grief is heads, love is tails. They go together. Mm-hmm. Um, and you cannot love her without feeling this grief that one day she won't be with you anymore. And the most important thing we can do is decide what you want to do with that feeling because a lot of us, when we believe pain is coming, we will put up as many obstacles as we can to not feel it because we don't want to feel it. So please don't stop loving our 14 year old, Lucy. Don't stop playing with her. Don't stop sleeping with her because you're going to let her go before she leaves us. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's be willing to feel this. So that's a long winded metaphor to say, I think that's what's going on in our families. When, when, Susie goes off to college and becomes a liberal right or um, your brother-in-law starts attending a new church and becomes very conservative we can feel that pain is coming in that and we can feel that maybe they'll leave us and so I think we decide well I don't want to feel that pain Um, I'm not going to break up with you you're going to break up you know you're not going to break up with me I'm going to break up with you we just like put up as many obstacles as we can and we tell ourselves like she thinks she's smarter than we are he thinks he's better than me um and and we kind of preemptively strike in a way that creates even more pain and doesn't solve anything and so i hope that that naming that uh can help us kind of like my daughter decide no i'm i'm going to stick with the love knowing that there probably will be some grief attached to it there always is
0: yeah i think another helpful thing that uh that you you guys made me think about in the book is you reference uh, Dr. Camp as mm-hmm. well in a conversation that you had with him on your podcast. And one of the big takeaways that you mentioned in the book is how it's important to educate through experiences and not necessarily, you know, go down the list of facts of why I am right and why you are wrong. And I would just love for you to kind of tease out what can that look like? What what does it look like to help educate with an experience and how can we know when we're getting it right. And maybe whenever we might be off base.
1: Well, I hope that I just provided an example of that with the the dog story, right? I could tell you a lot of statistics about the percentages of people who are willing to date someone of the opposing party. um, The percentages of people who say they're experiencing political conflict in their homes, but sadly statistics are just, um, not very persuasive for most of us. And there are some good reasons for that. We have a lot of examples of statistics being manipulated, um, but but our personal stories are what connect us to each other. Even if you've never had a dog, you've probably had someone or something in your life that you've loved and have watched age, right? And the, and you've experienced the pain of that. And, and what Dr. Camp does so brilliantly, David Camp, who's developed the White Ally Toolkit is say, Uh, People will question your statistics, but when you say, let me just tell you about what walking through the world feels like for me, they can't really question your feeling. They can't tear your feeling down because your feeling is true for you. Um, And then your feeling of truth can be a window into theirs. Mm -hmm. Um, And we can spend all day batting Atlantic articles back and forth, and I enjoy those articles and like to do it. But that is not how we... Sorry. <clears throat> that is not how we genuinely connect with each other in a way that allows influence to happen, where you're changing me through the conversation and I'm changing you. Um, we can't do debate team to try to get to that level of experience with each other.
0: Mm. What have you like? I, I can imagine that in, in some cases that that might be an easier thing to do whenever it is your personal experience. Like I imagine whenever engaging, you know, maybe around a conversation around race Or so, Mm -hmm. of like, hey, this is my experience with it, this is your experience with it, and engaging with it. Um, Sometimes it could be harmful or not harmful. um, It could be difficult whenever you don't have that experience. However, Mm -hmm. you are empathizing with other people who have gone through that experience. And so, I, I guess my question is how do you help people engage with experiences that aren't necessarily theirs, but they're not necessarily yours either? If That's that a great
1: sense. question. That's a great question. And I think your harmful word is not off base. I think there are times when it can be harmful to try yeah. to educate on someone else's experience that you haven't had and and so my answer would be to keep going back to my experience, my experience of this mm. issue that we're talking about and to admit I don't know what that feels like. I can imagine. I have seen mm. someone go through this and it looked really painful to me. Here's another like anecdote from my life. I remember being at a baseball game during pride month a couple of years ago and hearing someone in the crowd say something really ugly. And I did not say anything to that person. I did not respond in any way, except that I sat in the tension of my body thinking, oh my gosh, I hope that didn't hurt anybody right around us. And knowing that it did, it did hurt someone right there around us. And I didn't say anything. I didn't do anything about it. And I still feel awful about that. And so I think all the time, like what would I do in a similar situation in the future? So I can't have a conversation with someone who maybe opposes LGBTQ rights and and claim the experience of being LGBTQ. I can't, I don't know that experience, I haven't Mm -hmm. lived it. But I can say, let me tell you about this time I was at this baseball game and here's what happened. And I just imagined sitting beside someone whose sister has just come out. And, and I can empathize. And I just keep thinking about who do I want to be in this moment? Who do I want to be through this experience? So I I almost think the best we can do is keep making it very personal in those connective conversations. That's different than how you vote. It's different than how you um, advocate. That's why we break the book up into these, like, personal relationships versus the outward facing societal ones. Uh, But where we're really trying to meet people, I think we, we got to be honest about what we have and haven't lived.
0: Yeah. Uh, another idea that you that you talk about throughout the book, and it's around this idea of um, of cancel culture as mm-hmm. well. And you talk about how we have not learned how to handle this tension between redemption and ho- holding people responsible and account of, And that's something that I've been thinking about a lot, too, because especially, you know, for for people of faith as well, like redemption is baked into faith as well and yet the same as there we have a responsibility as well and i would just Mm -hmm. love your thoughts on how how have you wrestled through that tension and what helps you just what are your thoughts around that
1: oh the biggest thing that i return to in a conversation like this is i don't know and that's okay uh i don't have to decide what the appropriate sentence is for someone who's charged with a crime. I don't have to decide um, what Bill Cosby should pay to someone based on a, a 1975 assault. I don't I don't have to know those things. Um, what I do have to face in my own life is how I am going to look at human beings and their capacity for change. So my husband and I were just talking about somebody we know. <clears throat> who was talking about like removing herself from a situation that she found toxic several years ago. And my husband looked at me and said, well, like she was a big part of the toxicity in this situation. And that was true. And I said, right, that was true. And it was also several years ago. And we got to let that go and move on now. And maybe that feels trite in the context of some of the conversations we're having about cancel culture. I think it's all the same stuff, though. I think the willingness to say maybe a person can change. Maybe a person did something terribly wrong and it shouldn't affect them for the rest of their lives. Maybe there's a difference between thinking, you know, Matt Lauer shouldn't be on the Today Show again. But also I wish for Matt Lauer uh, the best of the the days that he has left. I wish for him to have a healthy whole existence um, filled with grace, even though he has lost this thing because of his own conduct. Uh, not to pick on Matt Lauer, but just, I th- I think it is working through these situations, recognizing I don't have to be judge and jury. I have to be a person who has a sense of what is right and acceptable and a sense that punishment only gets us so far on that journey.
0: Yeah. I think another thing that I've been thinking along with this, and, and in some instances, you know, Uh, something horrible, a crime happens Mm -hmm. and it, and it could be a very easy thing to go of like, yep, that like, it makes the decision easier for, um, for, for how to handle a situation. And in some situations it feels very complex and it can feel like very nuanced as well. And like you, you see it from one side then it's like, Oh, if I turn it a little bit more, there's another side and then there's another side and then there's another side and then there's another side. And I would, Just love to hear your thoughts on whenever it is something that is more uh, complex, how do you go about handling that situations or even like thinking through those situations of how to handle redemption and responsibility and everything else that comes with that?
1: Yeah, and I what I love about what you just said is that I think when we get more information, it's almost always more complex. Mm -hmm. I, I know of very few situations that are cut and dry. This was just evil and wrong. Um, I read a lot of Supreme Court opinions about people on death row for absolutely heinous crimes, and then uh, there'll be like a dissenting opinion that comes along that says, do you know about this person's background, Do you know what happened to them as a child and what led them down this path doesn't absolve them of responsibility, but it should change our calculus about what's humane. Mm -hmm in our societal response. So thing number one, I would say is to always be aware that I don't have all the information. I can't have all the information. No one has all the information about almost anything that's ever happened in human history. So I can't know all the information and it is possible that I could learn something that would change my mind, Hmm. which leads me to number two, which is I don't want to be responsible for personally enacting or supporting the enactment of a punishment that can't be undone. Um, so, so I'm against the death penalty for that reason. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, and I think about other decisions that are just irreversible and, and I don't want to get behind that because I could always learn something that changes my mind. Uh, and the third thing is to just keep focusing on what is my responsibility here. I think a lot of our angst and our burnout and our conflict with others and our just kind of general malaise right now results from feeling that because it's on my phone screen, I have direct and immediate and urgent responsibility toward a situation. There are so many things that I just can't, I don't have to decide because they aren't in front of me because I don't have a role here. So what can I take from it? That is meaningful to me. What can I incorporate about this into my personal thinking and experience that is enriching uh, that makes me a better person that exercises my civic duty. And then I got to let the rest go, which is hard. I wish it were easier.
0: Yeah. Uh, another big idea that you talk about is just around institutions as well and our own personal Mm -hmm. engagement on institutions. Um, and it just, I don't know, maybe, maybe this is just my perception, but it feels like recently in the past few years, like being a part of an institution, it's very easy to focus on the atrocities Mm
1: -hmm. that,
0: that they have committed and almost go, I'm not sure I want to be a part of this thing anymore, which is understandable. Um, but I love what you both do in this book is that you make the conversation a little bit more nuanced and go, (laughs) that is true, but this is also true too. And I would just love to hear from you. What are some of the things around the conversations of institutions that you wish that, uh, like, if you could get on like a megaphone and just say, you're right. The atrocities are true, but think about this also as it pertains to institutions and our engagement in it.
1: I think my megaphone moment would be a problem left alone always gets worse. And so where we see the atrocities that institutions have committed, if our thought is, well, let me starve this institution out, let me not give it attention, let me not give it my presence, my money, my participation, uh, perhaps it will shrink and eventually die, but it's going to get really gross on its way to that path and probably do a lot of harm in the process. Um, And so for me, recognizing that institutions were uh, not what they once were or that not or not what they claim to be or not what I thought they were has led me to want to get involved even more, because I think if if I'm disappointed in the church, the Congress, um, the Boy Scouts, whatever it may be, how do I expect it to improve if everyone who's disappointed walks away? Isn't it my responsibility? Who else is there? Isn't it my responsibility to get in here and roll up my sleeves and contribute in a positive way? Again, recognizing that my responsibility is not unlimited. I had a therapist once tell me you just do your best to put something good in the river, the river will dilute it. Sometimes it will transform the river downstream in ways you don't see. There's a lot going in the river. All you can do is do your best to put good stuff in the river. And that's how I feel about institutions. And the other thing I think is that, you know, loneliness is probably um, underneath a very high percentage of our political challenges right now. Mm. And I think the antidote to that loneliness is participation, is showing up in these imperfect, sometimes atrocious places and saying, how do we clean this up? What do we do next? How do we build something beautiful here? Um, Because a lot of these institutions, as toxic as they are, have the potential to be bright lights that are desperately needed. We cannot solve the challenges that face us in our houses by ourselves. And our work is taking, I think, way too much from all of us. Um, And it's causing us to neglect our communities. And so I think these institutions are a path to sort of rebuild those communities in a way that serves us well. And, and somebody else isn't going to do that.
0: Yeah. Can you talk about loneliness? Because that is something that just, again, that shows up all throughout the book as well. And even Mm -hmm. it, it makes me think of going back to what we were talking about earlier. I think sometimes it's the fear of us being alone that, that fuels a lot of this. Can you talk about that? And even how how you see manifestations of loneliness showing up that may not look like loneliness. Like I, I would say like the fear. The fear is loneliness is maybe driving that or the fear of loneliness.
1: The most persuasive uh, example to me recently of loneliness underlying almost everything is the fact that if you think about the people who breached the Capitol on January 6th, The folks who were there were more likely to live in a county that Biden carried than Trump. Hmm. They were people who live in places where they are outliers. So this wasn't like deep red folks who feel a sense of community getting behind their president. It was people who feel like outliers in their community. And that is a sense of loneliness that drives us to extreme actions to find community and find purpose and find expressions of purpose. Um, And you you know, you see that I read a book about the healthcare system a while back and about this little clinic in Florida um, that decided they were going to take a radically different approach to primary care. So they had a small number of patients, they celebrated patients' birthdays. If someone's refrigerator broke, they took them a new refrigerator. And they decided instead of thinking as much about medicine, we are going to think about the social life of our patients and the outcomes improved dramatically. We just need other people. And we have so few things built to ensure that we always have other people. That that clinic in Florida that I was reading about served senior citizens who were living alone in a socioeconomically depressed area. There were no structures around these folks. There were not family members coming to visit. They weren't going to kids' birthday parties and being grandparents. They were They were alone. And their physical health improved when their doctor's office arranged for them to have some friendships in their lives. Mm -hmm. So I just see all across the board incentives lined up, especially for us in America. I think a lot of this is a, is a pretty American phenomenon. We get a lot right here. I'm not trying to beat up on America, Mm -hmm. but I think a lot of incentives line up. If I think about my life just a few years ago, my day was built to roll up the garage door drive a commute by myself, work in an office alone, drive my commute by myself back, roll down the garage door, sleep and get up and do it all again the next day. That does not make for a life where you feel supported through hard things, where you feel like you're contributing to other people when they're going through hard things, where you feel a sense of being part of something bigger than you, where you even are tapped into the needs all around you. Uh, So... Sarah and I just feel really convicted that uh, it is important to stay engaged with the national news and donate to causes and and do all that activism on your phone and with your votes uh, that you can. But it is equally and maybe more important to invest in the people that are right around you because, again, nobody else is coming to do that.
0: Yeah. Uh, I got two other things I want to ask you. About, but is there anything else just top of mind that you want to that is just like I really want to talk about this, or you want to make sure that we cover?
1: I think so. I love your question, so I I I don't want to take the driver's seat. Okay, but thank you.
0: Um, Yeah, Um, I would love to hear uh, one of one of the big things, and again, it's just another theme which just helps me think of it in a new way. Is you talk so much throughout the book about learning to let go and to release control of outcomes of people. I would love to hear your thoughts on what has helped you become better at doing that. And like, I don't think it's probably so like, I know that it's something that we continuously get to better at. We probably don't master it, but what has helped you uh, get better at learning how to do that?
1: I think being a parent has helped me (laughs) uh, because you, you see every day I can do my very best. And this is a, this is a full autonomous human being. Um, And so that has helped me. I also think being a student of history is helpful. Um, A lot of people will say to me, like, I don't know how you read the news every day. It's so depressing. I just can't. I have to turn it off. It's so depressing. And I think, well, yeah, I guess. And also, I still would rather live at this moment than any other time Mm. on on Earth, you know, and statistics will tell that story. But if I just think through my living conditions, this is a great moment to be alive. Uh, as hard as it is, it's a great moment to be alive. And so uh, trying to understand what other people have lived through and what they've learned and and seeing that I will not see everything that we are wrestling with right now come to any kind of resolution or fruition. I will not. Like, it's it's just not available to me mm. and the more that i learn that lesson the easier it becomes to say i just got to take my place in this there there is no other option i can try to hold on to everything and control it and make myself anxious and um and sick about everything that happens or i can say i'm just gonna show up and do my best that, that idea of the river again just put the best stuff i yeah. can into the river. Um, and know that some good things will come from it. Some things will be better after I die, and some things will be worse no matter what I do. Mm-hmm. And I can only live a life that I'm that I'm on balance, proud of. I just want to on balance be a net positive.
0: Yeah. Uh, I'd be curious to hear, what's a piece of history that you wish more people knew about that you don't feel like enough people know about?
1: Probably the... Um, the spanish-american war and the way in which media led to and fueled that conflict i think we have this sense that media is wholly new that partisan media is wholly new and there are so many examples throughout history where uh you just see that like human speech has always been powerful that's why we say the pen is mightier than the sword it has always been so uh it's amplified right now and it's closer to us we hold it in our hands that's that's different Mm -hmm. um although maybe not we've always held newspapers in our hands but you know there's there is something very uh tactile about the way we interact with media now that i think is a little bit new uh but but people using megaphones to influence human events has always been and i think we would be well served to just recognize that
0: yeah and the last thing I just want to ask you about is you know, there's a lot of people who are maybe tired of the political process, want to disengage. And I imagine that that temptation is probably there for you on some days, especially on the low days. What helps you continue? And I know that we've probably talked about it a little bit, but I would just love uh, just to hear your thoughts. And what helps you continue to engage, continue to show up whenever it might just be easier to say, nope, I'm disengaging, I'm quitting. What helps you continue?
1: I was feeling a little down this morning. Honestly, I felt like the um, I I felt like some of the news this week has just been a lot to carry. And so uh, in in talking with our listeners about it, because I had to I had to make a mini podcast, um, I put it in the framework of talking about the light year movie and what is the lesson of the light year movie and how do I connect that to the to the present stories all of those connections, like storytelling, what does this mean to me? What would I, how would I explain this to my daughters? Uh, If I were having a conversation with friends about this, what would we pull out of it? That keeps me engaged because it helps me remember that this this is all just the story of humanity and I am part of that and it's part of me, whether I engage with it or not. Um, So I wanna be intentionally part of it instead of just floating through it. And I want to learn what I can from it. And ultimately, you know, especially because I have the fortune of talking with Sarah regularly and consistently, I think I've come to a place where no matter what has happened, no matter how horrible it is, you know, there are moments like when there's a school shooting, I think, give me a different job, I'll do anything. I cannot talk about another school shooting, but I've realized not to silver lining it because I would never, ever say that ultimately we are benefited by these things. I do not feel that at all. Um, But I have learned that whatever happens, how, no matter how terrible it is, I can learn something from it and incorporate it into my larger context and do something meaningful with that information. You have to really want to see it sometimes, but it's there.
0: Yeah. Well, Beth, I know that people are going to, you know, want to pick up your brand new book now What and keep up with, you know, Pantsuit Politics and you, where's the best place for people to go to do all those things?
1: Well, thank you so much for sharing this conversation with your audience and for your questions and the thoughtful way that you read the book. pansypoliticsshow.com um, is our website. It's really the front door to all of the things that we make. You can find the podcast and the book there. The podcast is wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, and the book again is now what, how to move forward when we're divided about basically everything.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for just doing the work.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: So, coming out of that conversation with Beth, there's there's just so many things that I could talk about for it, but I think I want to talk about one of the things that, uh, and may, maybe we'll add you know another thing or two, depending on what pops into my head, but the thing that I want to talk about the most is just the role that it pertains to uh, to dealing with our own anxiety as it pertains to these conversations. Because it's that, it's that pressure that we feel or that anxiousness that can cause us to forget about the people in the midst of the conversations that we're having. That we feel the, the anxiety that comes with it, which pressures us to, uh, to react very emotionally to it. To maybe respond in anger or with fear. Or with shame as a matter as sometimes can be a matter of fact and realizing that it's really important that we deal with those things and that goes back to learning to release control because some of the anxiety is created through trying to control things that we cannot control and some of that Is trying to control what other people think, which is never a good decision to try to control things that you can't control, especially what other people think. We can't control people. We can try, but that usually doesn't work. And it definitely does not work in the long term. And that can tend to erode the relationship. And so just thinking about how can we Calm our anxiety enough, deal with our own emotional state, our own emotions that we are experiencing so that we can engage with people in thoughtful conversation and for, for people who, um, you know, maybe like myself, who are, who are a follower of Jesus so that we can love other people really well also. And how can we, you know, and and it goes back to um, what, what we talk about so much here on the podcast. How can we be the type of person who can be a safe person for someone else? How can we create a safe place so that whenever other people bring these subjects to us, that they feel like they can talk with us about it and they won't experience judgment. They won't experience shame. That they will experience love and that doesn't necessarily mean that we agree with them completely it doesn't have to but we do love them and that they don't feel afraid around us i also think it's important to acknowledge that we can't be that person all of the time that there is going to be times to where because of because of who we're talking with or because of what we're talking about that there's just going to be times to where it's not good for us to engage in the subject matter of what we're speaking on or with the person who we're talking with. Because we're not perfect. We're not foul, fa- we're not infallible. We are we are human. And as much as it might be uh, great for us to be able to do that all the time, we just aren't. However, that shouldn't stop us from trying to to deal with our own anxiety to deal with our own emotions that rises with that but also acknowledging at the same time that we're not going to handle this perfectly and we're not going to get it right every single time however we can try and it's through working through our our own anxieties our own triggers that help us better to be able to love the people around us So that's some of the stuff that I'm thinking about with this. I would love to hear from you and some of the things that you're learning about as well. And the best way to let me know and to reach out to me is the Learners Corner podcast at gmail.com. And I think that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you to Sam Massey for providing the music for this podcast. Thank you to Beth for being on the podcast as well and uh, for writing the book along with Sarah. Uh, as well. And yeah, I think that's all that I have for today. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.